Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 199 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Anna Miles. She's a practicing SLT with 20 plus years of experience working in the acute and community settings. Anna is a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. She is a researcher, lecturer, and clinician in the areas of voice and swallowing disorders. Anna runs a hospital-based student teaching clinic, as well as an outpatient voice and swallowing rehabilitation clinic. She is the New Zealand Speech Language Therapist Association clinical expert in adult dysphagia. The Swallowing Research Laboratory and the Center of Brain Research at the University of Auckland, led by Dr. Miles, strives to improve the lives of people with swallowing difficulties through improved assessment, treatment, and medical education. The lab hopes to reduce the risks of pneumonia and death associated with swallowing difficulties, as well as improve the quality of life of others. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Anna. Hi, Teresa. Nice to see you. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. It is uh, 4 a.m. Anna's time. She just told me this. I feel horrible. We're... (laughs) recording it this early for her but thank you thank you I appreciate it it's no problem it's it's the problem with living so far away it is it is it is all right well um, tell the people a little bit about yourself hi everyone my name's Anna Miles I'm a speech language pathologist in New Zealand and um, I work at the University of Auckland as well as clinically and yeah, I'm here to talk to you a little bit about some of our research today. Um, I'm a clinical researcher. I tend to research the things that I see at work that I, I want the answers to. So this piece of work very much comes from that space, something something we all needed to know and wanted to know more about. 
Yes, yes. And and thank you. I, I love that you reached out and wanted to talk about it on here. And I always encourage, you know, so many researchers to please come on and, and chat. So thank you. I, I appreciate that a lot. No problem. No problem. I knew it would be something you'd, you'd be interested in, Teresa. Yes. Good, good, good. All right. Well, well, let's dive in. So tell us about it. Yeah, well, I thought we could talk about secretions today. Um, it's, it's what, what more fun to talk about it for in the morning, Anna? <laughs> It's not general public fun, right? But but um, if it's what we love, it's what we love, even if it's not what we can talk about at dinner parties. <laughs> but somehow we love it so much, so, so much. Um, so I, I guess, you know, especially if you work in areas like head and neck cancer, um, secretions are, are so super important. We know we need them. They help digestion. They... Um, help taste perception, they help us talk, um, they're neutralizing. And if we don't have saliva, we know what happens in our mouths. They, they, they tend to get pretty unhealthy. Um, and we also need secretions in our lungs. They help to bring up gunk. So all the time our lungs are slowly, superiorly bringing up secretions through to the larynx that we then swallow. So we like secretions, we hate it if we don't have them, but for many of us who work in acute care um, type populations, it's the other end of the spectrum that we tend to be dealing with where there are too many secretions um, and those secretions are becoming problematic. And that's really the area that that got my interest is um, our system of protective reflexes that that clear secretions and what happens when they're not working and where to draw the line when I'm looking at, at a patient's fees, when is too much, when is it too much, when is it just that healthy moisture um, and what does it mean? And really at the end of it, what my real answer question was, was what do I do about it? We don't treat symptoms, we treat physiology and I really wanted to try and start to unpick what it means when we just see a pharynx full of secretions. We've all seen it, but how do I move from seeing it to knowing what to do with it? And that's where this project started. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying we don't treat symptoms, we treat physiology. Because I do remember early in my career, it was, you know, basically I was taught by a supervisor, oh, just ask the doctor if we can get a scopolamine patch and dry up the secretions. And kind of the more I got working, I'm like, there, there's got to be a reason for this. And, and I don't, you know, and then we would hear about all the side effects of those patches and things like that. So it really got me thinking that I, it's not really our place to just be recommending these things to treat these symptoms when we really should be part of figuring out the bigger piece of the puzzle. I really agree. And that's that was absolutely my clinical um, problem was we're giving them medicines to dry out something we know is good for them. You know, we know we create all those secretions every day. We, you know, we always tell our patients, you, you, you create a hun, one, one liter and a half of secretions a day. It's just, it's just supposed to be there. Um, and then we were giving them medicines or in our cerebral palsy children's serious surgeries to try and reroute salivary glands and, Botox to try and stop what's actually naturally producing. And it it just didn't sit right with me that that was the right approach. And of course, it doesn't usually work. Um, we haven't had massive success in neurosurgery with drying people out. It just seemed to 
add to the complications because of course you were drying out all secretions and then they were having trouble with coughing up secretions as well because they were now sticky rather than loose. And it, it seemed to me if we're creating more than a litre of secretions a day, maybe those secretions aren't more than they should be. They're just not going where they're supposed to go um, rather than we are hyper-producing those secretions. So, so we needed a different answer to that. And I suppose that's where it led to the how do we measure it so that we can measure it well and then can we start to look at the pathophysiology of it um, as well if we, if we get to the point where we have a very consistent tool for measuring. But I guess before we get there, uh, the more important thing is what it does. But um, if you have lots of accumulated secretions, sadly, it isn't just lots of lovely saliva sitting in the wrong place. We, it has medical complications attached to it. And we definitely have significant amounts of literature from many of our big researchers in the field of dysphagia who've over and over again demonstrated the predictive value of accumulated secretions in the pharynx and larynx with pneumonia, with longer hospital stays, with poor success of decannulation, poor cuff deflation trials. Um, across all populations, in our paediatric caseloads, in our cerebral palsy children, in stroke, in ICU, um, it's pretty consistent that if you accumulate secretions and you look down on your fees and it's all full of um, bubbly <laughs> rubbish, that's not good for you. And, and therefore, as the speech therapist, the speech pathologist who saw that, we have some sort of part to play in alerting teams and working out with the multidisciplinary team to what to do about it. Because obviously we know those pneumonias are the worst thing that can happen. And I think a real game changer was for me was that, that literature that slowly started to build our confidence that the secretions are worse than seeing an aspiration event. That aspirating your secretions is far more predictive of pneumonia than aspirating on a sip of water on fees. And I think that's really important because fees is so sensitive to aspiration and we get really, really worried and obsessed with what we see when we're looking down on that pharynx. We see that larynx, it's looming up at us. And um, this was really important to me and trying to work with my students, trying to take away that myth that one aspiration event of food fluids is it. And now you have to be nailed by mouth. You know, so this was really important to me that, this is more important than if you see a, a one-off event of aspiration on food fluids. Those secretions aspirating silently into the larynx are not a good sign. And what we, we probably all know why it happens. You know, they sit there long enough that we accommodate to them and we stop responding to them. And that's what we all see when we meet patients that have been nil by mouth too long, been intubated too long, been hospitalized for ages. But it's clearly not a good thing, <laughs> silently aspirating a, a litre of saliva that's dwelled in your mouth first, and it's a, therefore it's full of bacteria, is, is got to go wrong, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember some of my very first patients that I that I did fees on. 
um, in a, in a long-term acute care hospital. And just, I mean, you just get down there and you just see the secretions going down and coming back up and going down in the larynx, coming back up. And it's like, oh my gosh, I know. this poor person. Just going so, with their breath, right? Yeah. Yeah. I read such a cool paper the other day that I knew, I, I thought of you when I read it. It was demonstrating that that you were more likely to get pneumonia with a nasogastric tube than with a PEG, which we've all worried about nasogastric tubes and PEGs, right? But we've never really seen that literature. Interesting. But yeah. it was only if you had accumulated secretions in your pharynx. And I thought that's so interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that we've all looked at those nasogastric tubes down the throat and gone, I know that's not good for that patient. The secretions are all sticking to it. It's really hard for them to clear them. Yet literature's never really proved to us that. I don't, I haven't read stuff that's made me go, oh, I can easily advocate for early PEG. Nasogastric tubes are so bad. But what they showed it showed us that there was a clear relationship between accumulated secretions on a nasogastric tube and higher rates of pneumonia compared to PEG patients, um, which really sort of hints at maybe a heightened clinical risk from that bacterial load if you're the sort of patient who is getting it all sticking to that to that tube, you know, and then those back, that bacteria that's lying around on that tube is then going down into the lungs and causing pneumonia or something. I guess that's the sort of thing that maybe we're thinking about there. But it's made me think we need to go back to that research line of really looking at PEG versus NG because I know so many of us of being desperate for literature that says, oh yeah, the NG has an impact on our swallow physiology or the NG, the NG's got to be bad. Because clinically we see it looking so bad so often, don't we? We see the swollen up arotenoids and we're convinced it was the NG banging away at them. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was a really interesting paper and well worth researchers continuing to look at. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I mean, secretion scales aren't new. Um, the lovely Murray scale was 1996 or something, and that four-point scale that many of us have used clinically. Um, and then I think maybe a few years later, the Mariam Joy scale came out. So the Murray scale is very location-based. So where are the secretions and where are they moving to? The Mariam Joy has a bit more about amount, so it's location plus amount. And neither of them were quite hitting the mark for me. I, I did my PhD in silent aspiration, so I'm super interested in response. Um, I'm super interested in trying not to get us to always think everything's motor function and that sometimes what we see might be because of sensation. Um, maybe they're not squeezing because they can't feel it there rather than because they're weak. Um, so I, I really wanted to, to pick up on that in a scale. So what we tried to create was a secretion scale that included airway responsiveness. So not just amount and location, but also what do you do with it? And that made sense to me clinically that the patients that just, as you said, sit there and the secretions are like blowing in and out of their larynx and, and in they go when they breathe in and up they come when they breathe out um, and they're doing absolutely nothing about it. They had to be more, more at risk 
And it had to be a different sort of treatment plan I needed for them because they're not feeling it, not just they're weak and can't, they're struggling to clear it. Whereas the patient who's coughing and coughing and clearing really well, but they've just got loads of chest secretions, you know, that seems a completely different sort of treatment approach needed. Um, so we had the three parameters, the location, which we weighted towards the larynx. So if it got as far as being inside your laryngeal vestibule and particularly below the glottis, you you got more points um, amount. So um, small amounts up to large amounts. Um, and I'll talk about what we used as small amounts later. Um, and then um, what did you do with it? We know that what we do with things is different depending on how much goes in and where it is. So what we do with something around the rim of the of the arytenoids and the rim of the epiglottis and sitting in the piriform as we swallow them. You know, we don't necessarily cough when things are, are not right at the vocal cords. And even at the vocal cords, sometimes we just do a nice strong swallow. So we wanted to make sure we were looking at all the reflexes, not just whopping great big coughs and that a cough response was not the only thing you needed. So we looked at a sort of response dependent um, scoring with, if it goes down below the vocal cords and you don't cough at all, then obviously you get higher points. And we weighted the, the response greater than the other aspects to really um, reflect the literature on silent um, aspiration of secretions being your greatest risk. One of the things we deliberated on a lot was how to do amount, and lots of people have looked at that, and it's quite an interesting sort of researcher's fun to try and work out how am I going to measure the amount um, of something. It's almost like you just want to take like a teaspoon yeah, yeah. and like scoop it out. Yeah, I don't know. That's always what I thought. I'm like, if I could just get a teaspoon down there and just, yeah. Oh, we've, we've come up with all sorts of stuff over a glass of wine. You know, can we suction it out, measure it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what we actually decided was far more sensible, I think, <laughs> which was actually, I don't care how much it is. I care if it fills you. And we know that some people have, especially our lovely oldies, can have the largest piriforms in the world. You're like, you could probably fit your whole litre in there <laughs> before it before it will overfill. Um, and some people, of course, are edematous and have very little space for, for holding and therefore are at more risk. So it made sense to us that we talked about um, amount of your space filled because actually that was far more clinically useful. If it's overflowing your spaces, you'd become at risk. So if your spaces are small and you overfill quicker, you might not have that many secretions, but they're overflowing into your larynx and, and causing you trouble. Uh, so that's that's how the scale developed. Awesome. We've been using it for a while now, and um, other groups are using it now. RCSLT um, put it in their COVID guidelines, so all patient, COVID patients are getting the New Zealand secretion scale, the NZSS, and it's you know the validation's looking really strong. Um, it's correlating beautifully with aspiration, with pneumonia. Our first paper, we took a couple of hundred patients who just got referred to fees at the hospital. So acute, acute caseload, 
patients that were just coming our way anyway. And we were absolutely stunned. You know, we knew secretions mattered to us, but we were stunned that 30%, you know, so a third of patients were silently aspirating. And that seemed silently aspirating the secretions. So it had to be going all the way down through the larynx and not being cleared. And, you know, I thought that's actually, that's a lot of our acute care caseload that we're managing at that highest risk. And it really sort of brought it home to me that we need to be working with these people, not, not just on all of their other stuff, but on these secretions themselves. And I think 11% of those patients had elevated secretion scores but didn't aspirate. So those were the people, if we ignored the secretions and just looked at the food and drink we gave them, they would be fine. They would have eaten and drunk everything and we'd gone, hey, guys, these people are fine. They're absolutely okay. But they they had the elevated NZSS scores and they developed pneumonia despite not aspirating on their fees. And I think that that really, really is an important point for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, that's always the hard part of clinic. You know, it's like you, we do a fees and, and you know, I always hate those arguments if people are like, oh, it's only a snapshot in time. And it's like, yes, but no, but yes. You know, we get so much information in that little snapshot, but there still could be other things going on in other environments and different things that we just don't capture then. So we have to look at that overall picture don't we they're they're clinical risks factors we know that there are clinical risk factors for dysphagia we know there are clinical risk factors for pneumonia we have to look at the bigger picture not just our one assessment don't we um but we need to also grab the most we possibly can from every assessment we do (laughs) yeah 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 I think that was a really interesting challenge that I was set by the clinicians when we started using the New Zealand secretion scale, that I thought it was going to be fine. We all know that larynxes and pharynxes are moist and we all know what accumulated secretions look like. And then you develop a scale and suddenly the most minute (laughs) complications occur where people are like, but is this enough or is this too much? (laughs) And we were like, oh no, we have to feed a whole lot of healthy, normal people. I don't really want to do that just to prove that the secretions are normal, but they shouldn't be over this amount, you know. So we decided to do something slightly cleverer than grabbing all the patients' loved ones as they came into hospital and making them go through a scope. So we we took our laryngology, so our ENT clinic patients. You know, I've, I've looked at those for decades and knew what the, how moist the larynxes were. So we took 100 of our patients who came in with a voice problem, 100 who came in with like a globus reflux, chronic cough type problem, so our middle airways and digestive ones, and then 100 that came in with a swallowing problem. And we compared their New Zealand secretion scale um, scores um, and really tried to unpick and took lots and lots of photographs. And we've just published this in the current current opinion of otolaryngology with lots of really nice photographs of what moist larynxes look like. It's it's not going to make the 10 o'clock news, but <laughs> it's great for us, right? So um, what came out was quite clear that the New Zealand secretion scale scores are low 
very, very low if you don't have dysphagia. Um, really, they're one. We had we had seven patients who didn't get a one who weren't in the dysphagia group. One of them had chronic cough and they uh, had a, a score of three out of seven and they were diagnosed with a vocal cord paralysis and dysphagia. And then six of them had voice problems with NZSS of four. And again, they all had either um, severe um, respiratory disease, so um, infections, or were then later diagnosed as being dysphagic. So really, truly, we were seeing a very nice sensitivity with the NZ, as you say in America, NZSS. Um, and as soon as it's elevated, your risk of dysphagia is, uh, is, is there, which has been really useful to work with the ENT um, colleagues with, that if they're doing routine endoscopy clinics and they're looking at voice complaints, they're looking at chronic cough, they're looking at globus um, and reflux, if that NZSS score goes over one, look out for swallowing problems. Give them an eight ten. Work out work out why they've got that elevation. Um, bring in your SLP to help you out. Um, so you know, not one not one patient who was elevated who didn't have a good reason for it. And if you think about how many hundreds of endoscopes go down for other people. Uh, for other reasons, I just think that's so interesting that we can say that to our ENT colleagues and say, use this, this is simple. Or you were looking down anyway, just look at the secretions. So I thought that was a really interesting finding. Well, let me ask you, Anna, so did you say, so an elevated NZSS score is a red flag for dysphagia or for aspiration? Dysphagia, for later, for later having, yeah, being... Um, diagnosed with dysphagia yeah okay yeah so it correlated with the 810 and correlated with finding out that they were having problems swallowing yeah I mean the NZSS has been correlated with aspiration but as I said not always are they matched um, because aspiration is such a, a funny old game and is only one symptom of dysphagia um, so yeah, more more sensitive than just looking for aspiration. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so none earlier. None of these patients okay. aspirated. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Earlier in my career, I used to interchange like risk factors for dysphagia and risk factors for aspiration. I forget who it was. Somebody was like, "You got to catch yourself with that." And I'm like, "I do." And so now I'm really kind of tuned into that because it's a huge difference. It, it, you know, sometimes as, as SLPs, we, you know, interchange those things, but they're not, they're, they're vastly different. So no, dysphagia is so much more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have it, I presume. Um, yeah. Yeah. That is a pretty horrible, a horrible condition. Yeah. One of the interesting things we found in our dysphagia group was that the NZSS were, were elevated um, in the in, for the, in the most uh, most part. But the head and neck cancer group were really interesting. So, you know, we see that. that early on, this, their secretion scores were horrible, you know, during treatment. So during chemo rads or straight after surgery, they had those huge accumulated throthy secretions that were clearly saliva just aerating and becoming very um, frothy and 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 in all over the place. 
Um, so their secretion scores were super high, over four all the time. But as we got to later disease, so our sort of 12 months out, head and neckers, their NZSS scores were lower. So they were going below the four, but clinically they were still very problematic because now they were in that sticky, sticky stage of uh, secretions. No pun intended, but yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> Uh, so so what what was interesting there was for me to just go I've been looking at the scale for so for a few years now stop don't obsess with numbers numbers are important but don't forget clinical stories that yes uh, an NZSS of three is better than they had when they had a seven but just like getting your peg out when you've got head and neck cancer is not the end of your journey. Um, they still had problems as secretions when they were at a three or four. They just weren't a seven anymore, but now they were sticky and horrible and, and still getting in the way. So just reinforcing that adding scales to your fees reporting can't outweigh the clinical story. They're just um, additional little bits that help you along the way. But certainly... The NZSS is a beautiful way of monitoring patients over time, beautiful way of getting pictures of population groups. Um, and as I just said, also looks like a super useful tool for a doctor to be using in their clinics for picking up people who need referral to us. Um, and I, I think if we're using standardized, standardized, standardized scales, we have a lot more uh, power for that sort of thing than just I saw something. Um, so I am a huge advocate for numbers wherever you can in your reporting. I agree. I think the use of of the you know patient reported outcome measures is helping drastically as well. Just kind of to help put the whole whole picture together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My patients get bored stiff of them. They they do them all the time. <laughs> I, I just believe in them. They tell me yeah. so much. Yeah, yeah. One, eight, ten. Every time I see someone, they're in the waiting room. They've they now got me on their mind because they're now filling in this, and it's priming them to tell me the bits that are starting to bother them. And it tells me how they're feeling that day. You know, if they're suddenly really elevated, I know they're not coping. I know it's a self-report, so I know it's really vulnerable to how they're feeling and how they're coping and an elevated eat with a didn't aspirate on fees still tells me a hell of a lot about life and what's going on for them and therefore what I need to do about it. Right. I, exactly what you said. I just always love sort of the prompting factor of it. You know, it's like, oh, what's new today? Nothing. And how are you feeling? Fine. And then, okay, do this for me. And then it's like, well, this has been bothering me. I forgot a few days ago this happened. You know, it all of a sudden just triggers this waterfall of, of thoughts and, and things, which is wonderful and that, you know, you leave the office and you want to kick yourself for not, you know, telling the person about them. But, you know, that's why I think these scales are just so good. I've, you know, I've done them for other professions too and it just it just jogs your your memory about things that you probably don't want to keep in the forefront of your mind <laughs> so you're so right I always teach the students never ask the question once you know they go, they're on the wards they go up to a new patient and they say have you ever had any swallowing problems I have yeah. never met anyone who says nope. yes to that <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why the word swallowing problems doesn't actually click yeah. with yeah. patients yeah. 
Um, they don't say dysphagia, <laughs> but, but still that is just does not equate to the average person. And then it's, well, is there any food you don't eat? Oh, yes. I haven't had toast or meat for years because it just gets stuck in my throat. And it's like, you just said no. <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to ask it that their way, not our way. That's for sure. So I guess uh, my next challenge is now that we've got a scale that's looking lovely and and robust, um, trying to unpick the pathophysiology and treating it. You know, I really want to be able to say to my patient, this is what we've found and these are the treatments that I think will, will work best for you, especially those hospitalised neurosurge patients, CU patients where... You know, they're so, they're so limited and there's secretions everywhere. It's stopping their trachea coming out. I would love to be able to say we've got accumulated secretions and it looks like it's more sensory for you. These are the activities that may may work, you know. And, th and then actually as researchers, we can go and look at those activities in the patients who have the sensory problems rather than everyone and then not get the answers we want because it's too broad and you know this is me dreaming now this is I'm not being a scientist I'm being a dreamer I would love to be able to say ice chips and sensory stimulation is just what you need or we need to get in with EMST and really um, strengthen you up because yours is because you can't swallow them you can't clear them it's a motor weakness problem um, and if they're both we can say look we need to kick this kick this from both angles. We need to get the sensory and the motor in. I, I would love to feel like when I'm on the wards, that's what I'm doing. And I don't think I am at the moment. I think I'm, I'm dreaming at that and hoping that what I do has some sense behind it. We certainly don't have beautiful clinical trials that tell us that yet. Um, but there are papers beginning to come out that are sort of trying to work out that link and they do seem to come in both angles from the sensory and the motor so there's been some nice papers recently and I summarized them or we summarized them in this latest paper in current opinions of otolaryngology I don't know whether anyone reads the current opinions they're so much fun they the job we're given is to only summarize the last 18 months of literature on a topic so you're invited to, to talk on a topic and you've got to do a lit review of just what's just come out and present just that. Um, and it's so much fun as a researcher to do um, because you're always completely surprised. I was like, we will never find anything on secretions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we did. Yeah. We did. Yeah. And actually, there's quite a lot on sensory response and um, increased sensory thresholds and poor um, reflexes, so, you know, tapping the larynx and then being insensate, uh, but also some threshold testing, all linking to accumulated secretions. And um, I think that's not surprising to us. You know, that's that's probably what we expect is there's some sensory deficit deficits, particularly in those who are silently aspirating. But interestingly, there was also quite a bit of literature on motor pathophysiology and accumulated secretions in people who had poor anterior hyoid movement, who had poor UES opening and um, poor basal tongue to posterior pharyngeal wall contact. 
Um, so that that hit home for me. What I was thinking was that some patients they just can't squeeze hard enough. They're not getting the opening of the UES to drain the secretions. So if you can't open the UES and drain those secretions, of course they're going to accumulate because it's got nowhere to go. It's sitting at the at its door and the door's not opening. So I, I think that's that really is what we need to do next. Is we now know that some people are sitting there because they don't know it's there, and some people are sitting there because they're just so weak or they have a specific uh, motor impairment like UES opening um, that they just can't drain it. And we know there's a liter going down and we need to unpick them because we can't treat one with one treatment if it's entirely the wrong treatment for them. Um, so our current work is trying to do that, but it's very, very hard to do. <laughs> it's very hard to try and test motor and sensory function through fees. Um, there aren't that many tools um, available to us, uh, but we have a study going in Perth with my very, very good friend and collaborator, Alex Hunting, and we're using the pharyngeal squeeze maneuver and we're tapping the cords and we're using absolutely everything available to us, uh, swallow frequency, measures and just seeing if we can start to link symptoms to physiology a little bit more like you we're very motivated to use fees at its absolute max function um, it's not going to overtake manometry and video fluoroscopy for some things but if i've got a scope down there i want to be able to collect the most amount of inf information i possibly can and not just become a observer oh, I can see that, I can see that. There's residue there, there's aspiration there, there's secretions there. I, I want to really see if it's possible to take more from the fees than that. Um, so we're nearly at 200 participants in the study. Oh, awesome. So watch this space, but it's it's um, not surprisingly a messy world when you try and collect fees in a hospital environment. Um, it's not going to be a pretty clear picture, but hope, hopefully we'll find something interesting. Yeah. 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 Let me, let me ask you the million dollar question, Anna. Is it, are, are you also feasing COVID patients too? Is there, are there things that you're seeing COVID wise that are different from what you're seeing with not COVID patients? Yeah. Um, I mean, as you know, we're very lucky in New Zealand. We do not have large proportions of hospitalized COVID patients. Oh, good, good, good. We're very, very lucky. Um, we have had very small amounts of community spread that we've locked down fast. But as you know, I've been heavily involved in the COVID response internationally and have a have had a lot of conversations with people who sadly are only facing COVID patients um, and have done for so long. Um, and, you know, our colleagues in the UK have been, have been huge leaders in this and quite rightly have OBEs to, 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 uh, to say thank you for their incredible work. But yes, absolutely. The um, secretion accumulation in, a co in our COVID patients looks horrific. And um, I mean, we, we can probably guess it's a mixed pathology. They have longer intubation times than the average ICU stay. 
So they're, they're getting a large portion of time intubated. Um, I know Sarah Wallace was saying to me the other day that she thinks the proning might be having an effect too, that maybe we're just getting more bashing around of those vocal cords because we're having to move the patient so much to try and clear their lungs, um, support, support their respiratory function. But of course, alongside all of the sensory impairments we get from that, so we know we get sensory impairments and laryngeal pathology from ETT tubes sitting there for, forever without any airflow through to the pharynx. We also then get weak, don't we? Because we've sat in the hospital bed for, for weeks. So I think probably we're looking at accumulation of secretions from both angles, a sensory response, a irritation response to pathology. You know, they've all got granulomas and nasty stuff all over the vocal cords and edema. Um, and then they get weak because they've sat there for so long. So that's why they take so long to rehab. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. No problem. So I guess the take home, home message is that um, secretions are important. We should be reporting them. They're probably more important than our one-off aspiration events. And therefore, we definitely want to be thinking about what we report where the risk factors are, is a little bit in the molecular problem, probably not, but is it coming over the piriform into the larynx? Probably yes. We know if your mouth's clean, what goes down is cleaner. So, you know, remembering that we have other tools for managing bugs. So if we know we've got a patient at risk of saliva being in their airway, go full on with that oral care advice. Use a standard measure so that you can measure over time, so you can talk to teams about, well, I tell you what, your medicine didn't work. They've still got a secretion rating scale of, of seven, or I tried these techniques, and if I get them doing a swallow frequency activity of swallowing every 30 seconds for five minutes, it seems to clear those secretions, and they go from a seven down to a three in five minutes and seem to be able to maintain it for 20 minutes of a session. That's so much more useful than, I don't really know, maybe this will work. So using it to justify strategies and compensatory strategies, um, using it to communicate between us, using it to look at patients over time and encouraging our ENTs to use it as a, as a trigger for a referral for SLP and yeah, I guess a challenge to us all is to then start to work out how to target that. You know, if we're seeing the silent aspiration, looking at our more sensory-based tools, and if we're seeing struggling patients who look like they know it's there and they say they know it's there, but they can't clear it, um, thinking about whether we want a video fluoroscopy to look at their physiological function and their, and their motor biomechanics and getting in with some of our strengthening exercises and just, yeah, using the secretions like we're, we use our aspiration and really trying to, to make the most of that information. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you, Anna. This has been so, so helpful. Do you use yeah. a secretion rating scale? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have asked you. I, no, I, I, go, I go through waves, to be honest. I mean, I, I, I was for a while and then I stopped and then I 
started again. So I think just because I, I personally had trouble with, okay, now what do I do with this information? Like as, as a clinician, I just was like, okay, there's a lot of secretions here. They can't clear them. I, you know, what, what is this telling me, you know, in the grand scheme of things? So I think that's where my start and stop hesitations came from. Yeah. So yeah, when you, when you wanted to talk about this more, I was really curious because I think that's what all, you know, clinicians want to know is like, okay, we've collected this data. We've collected this information now. How does this guide our treatment plan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully I've convinced you that if we use it in a different way, if it's the amount and it's all in the piriform, well, does a head turn work? You know, swallowing your saliva with a head turn, can you release that UES? Can you let it drain? You know, just taking a slightly more physiological approach to it rather than just it's there or it's not. I agree. That's not, that doesn't help as much. Yeah. Right. Right. So awesome. Well, thank you, Anna. I greatly appreciate this. Thank you. And um, maybe next time I won't talk about secretions. All right. Well, that's, yeah. Or maybe we don't do it at four in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk about something second. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks, Anna. I appreciate you. Take care. Have a good day. All right. You too. Bye. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.